go ahead and get our Bibles out. Turn to Judges chapter 8. Before we jump into that, I just want to tell you, uh, I love having families worship together, and I especially love hearing the children of the church singing. It's just, it's amazing, it's beautiful. Uh, I just, I, I love it so much. Uh, and also, moms, if you end up struggling, don't forget we have gospel kids right in the back there, uh, four and under, if you feel like, ah, I can't pay attention. We got a solution to help you with that, okay? Um, can you turn my microphone up just a little bit, Cohen? Thank you, buddy. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. And if you are here on this lovely Sunday, I want to congratulate you for surviving the onslaught of Omicron. We'll see how you fare next week. My favorite TV show of the year last year was Ted Lasso, season one. Now, if you haven't seen this show, I should warn you, it's about soccer. I'm waiting for somebody to boo here. No? Okay. Now, uh, having said that, no one hates soccer as much as I do, but I still found the show to be uh, truly beautiful. It was a throwback. It felt like an earlier time in television when there was more light than darkness on the screen. Season one of Ted Lasso is full of joy hope, love, and positivity. And the main character, Coach Lasso, he's an American football coach who somehow, someway, ended up as the head coach of the British soccer team, or of a British soccer team, name unknown to me. Now, Coach Lasso is, I think, in many ways, a very real Christ figure in this show. He, wherever he goes, he demonstrates grace, wisdom, patience, love, kindness, even to his enemies, especially to his enemies. Coach Lasso is my favorite character in season one, but my second favorite character is Nate Shelley, the team's ball boy. The first time we encounter Nate in season one, we find a sad, timid, pathetic little man. Nate is the kind of man who shudders in the presence of anyone with just a little more confidence than him. He is fearful and lowly. But when Coach Lasso shows up, well, his life changes. Nate's life goes from being truly miserable, being the victim of extreme bullying from the players on the team, just pathetic, really. It goes from that to amazing. We come to call him Nate the Great. And this happens because Coach Lasso is kind to Nate. He, he lets Nate share ideas with the coaching staff. He seeks counsel from Nate on matters of British culture. And most importantly of all, Coach Lasso helps Nate rise up and earn real respect from the team. By the end of season one, Nate has gone from ball boy to one of the assistant coaches. You know, as an American, you gotta love it. It's a real rags to riches story. Fearful, Lowly, doubting, to prominent, confident, and strong. But then comes season two. In season two, Nate the Great becomes Nate the Not-So-Great. As one of the team's assistant coaches, Nate gains just the tiniest bit of power. And as soon as he does, it goes to his head. He begins to abuse it. He becomes 
arrogant, condescending, jealous, vengeful, and by the end of season one, even traitorous. One commentator of the show puts it like this. Nate is what happens when an underdog finds himself suddenly with the power to do something to his tormentors, and he chooses to lash back. We'd all like to think that at the heart of every bullied child is a kind person waiting to forgive and forget, that everyone who's ever been trod upon would refuse to tread upon someone else if given the chance, that tortured people get beat up because they are meek or because they choose to turn the other cheek. Sometimes all of these things are true, but sometimes bullied people build hard shells around themselves because of the pain. Sometimes people who have been stepped on their entire lives are more apt to fight back when given the opportunity because they've been storing up rage and they're ready to let it go. This author is writing about Nate Shelley in the show Ted Lasso, but he could very well be writing about Gideon a.k.a. Jeroboam, son of Joash, in Judges chapter 8. As we've worked through Judges 6 and 7, we've seen the, the rise of Gideon, once the lowly, humble, and fearful child of the smallest and weakest clan in Israel. And yet, by God's astounding grace, Gideon becomes the leader of a victorious army. And if we could just end the story right there, Man, it would be like Ted Lasso season one, you know? We could just have the story of a golden boy hero who rises up from the ashes of his lowly position to become the hero that everyone's been waiting for. But that's not where the story ends. As Judges 7 moves into Judges 8, today we are going to find Gideon changing for the worst. He goes from lowly, humble, and fearful to arrogant, vengeful, and idolatrous. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in together. Father, as we study this text together, we need your help not to understand the, the grammar and the syntax of the text, but to understand the spiritual truths that you have here for us. Everything in our flesh is going to rise up against the way that you will confront us with your word. You're going to show us sins and we're going to try to push back and say, that's not true of me, but God, you know the truth of our hearts and our lives. So we need you, God. And we rest in the promise that you have promised to be with us, to not only reveal to us the depths of our sin, but also to apply the balm of grace to our hearts as the wounds of our soul are exposed. So Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us with the fullness of the gospel this morning through the preaching of your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, if you weren't here two weeks ago, you might not know, but we saw together two weeks ago Gideon tearing down some of the altars in Israel. The Baal altar, the Asherah altar. And in this morning's text, we're going to see that even though Gideon tore down those Canaanite idols in the land, he did not, and indeed could not, eradicate the idols living in his own heart. And in fact, living in the hearts of the people in the land. So we're going to look at four idols specifically. Four idols specifically. If you're a note taker, these are going to be your four points this morning, okay? Point number one, status. Point number two, security. Point number three, self. 
And point number four, superhero. So let's look at the first point together, the idol of status. Look at verses one through three, where we're going to find this idol of status predominantly in the warriors of the tribe of Ephraim. (coughs) Then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the harvest of Abiezar? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Okay, let me set the scene. These verses uh, pick up right after the spectacular and miraculous victory of Judges 7, which we looked at last week, right? So after Gideon and his 300 men blew the trumpets and smashed their jars that contained those lights that we probably don't really understand, and, and after the Midianite army turned on each other in confusion and began to slay one another, after all of that, the Midianite army did what every army does when they are about to lose a battle. They began to flee. A a, a retreat was in place. And so once the retreat began, Gideon calls out all the rest of the soldiers that he sent home before. At first it was just me and the 300, but once the retreat began, he calls out all the rest of Israel to go and chase them down and finish the job. You can see this in verse 23. Look there. Gideon said to them, Uh Uh-oh, wrong verse. Uh Uh-oh, am I pulling a Sean? No, right there in verse 3. No, I don't know what's going on there. I messed up. Stay with me, guys. I am your fearless leader. Now, what you'll notice is that the tribe of Ephraim is not called out here. All these other tribes come out, Asher, so on and so forth, but Ephraim is not called out. Well, why not? Well, they were called out. They were just called out a little Later, look at verses 24 and 25. Gideon sent messages, sorry, this is 7, 24 and 25. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Bara and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Bara and also the Jordan. Now, here's our question. Why was Ephraim the last to be called out to the chase? I'm not really sure. I would like to venture a guess. If I had to venture a guess, I would say it was probably a matter of practicality. When you look at the map uh, of the, the valley of, of Jezreel where this was taking place, you'll see that you know, the, the horde, the locust horde, and where the camels can't be counted because they're as many as the grains of, this, you know, uh, of, the, of the beachhead. You can see that Uh, there are all these Israelite tribes around the valley of Jezreel, and then down here you have Ephraim. So it seems like what's probably happening is that as Gideon is routing the enemy out of the valley, they go south. And so Gideon, for tactical reasons, chooses not to call Ephraim so that they can remain in the south and cut them off at the pass, creating a sort of pincer movement on the enemy. That's my best guess. Regardless of Gideon's rationale, whether I'm right or wrong in that guess, Ephraim was called out later than the rest of Israel, and they were bitter about it. 
So they go to Gideon and they say, what have you done to us? And then the text says, they began to accuse him fiercely. What we have here, friends, is an issue of glory hunger. You remember last week in chapter 7, verse 2, we saw that God knew that the Israelites, if God gave them the victory, that they would glory over God in their victory. That's the whole reason why he reduced their number down from 30,000 to 300, so that they couldn't have any glory in their victory. Well, now as the battle continues and as the rest of Israel comes out to the battle, we see that God knew exactly what he was doing. He was exactly right. Ephraim is showing that it is hungry for glory. We want to be out there in the battle. How could you leave us behind? As I was studying this week, I thought, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if God sovereignly orchestrated these events in just this way to keep Ephraim from being called out to the chase because God knew that perhaps Ephraim was the hungriest of all for human glory. So hungry, in fact, that they could not celebrate the victory. I mean, think about what's happening here. There is a miracle happening in their midst. 300 soldiers destroying 130,000 soldiers, sending the army fleeing in panic. God is obviously working in the land, and Ephraim can only think about itself. Why didn't you call us out? Why could you do this to us? Why don't you let us get any of the glory? Rather than rejoicing, they're complaining. Rather than worshiping, they are accusing. Now, just to be clear, it's not wrong to want to be first to the battle, whatever the battle may be. I hope that all the men of our church are the kind of men that if there's a battle that needs to be fought, that they are eager to be the first ones there. But the intentions of our hearts matter. If you want to be first to the battle because you're eager to be used by God to do good, that's great. Or if you want to be first to the battle because you are in an act of love willing to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters, that's great. If you want to display courage and honor and set the tone right at the beginning for everyone else coming after you in the battle, that's great. But Ephraim's angry response to Gideon here makes it clear that their hearts were not motivated by virtue, but rather by a hunger for carnal glory. This is very much borne out in the fact that Gideon flatters them in the extreme in order to set them at ease. And it works. Now, let me pause while I'm here. Let me give you two, uh, two little marks of a glory hog, okay? And by the way, this is from one recovering glory hog to, to another, okay? Two marks of a glory hog. The first thing is that everything is always about them. And it's not just that, you know, they're always talking about themselves. Uh, every story somehow comes back to them. They, you know, like Brian Regan tells us, they always have to have the one-up story, you know. They just can't let you talk about yourself. It's deeper than that. It's, it's no matter what's happening, they tend to always take it personally, right? So consider that the Ephraimites did not approach Gideon with a sincere question, but rather with a fierce accusation. They assumed the worst about his leadership. The only reason, the only reason that they could imagine for Gideon not calling them out to the battle was a negative one. 
They didn't go, hey, Gideon, you didn't call us out. To be honest with you, we're kind of offended, but maybe you have a reason. Could you help us understand? No. It, it had to be a slight against them. I wonder, is that how you treat people in positions of authority over you in your life? You just kind of always assume the worst about them? Think about maybe members and pastors of this church. Uh, I feel very loved and cared for as a pastor of this church, and all the elders do, and I very rarely feel, feel like I'm being fiercely accused. But I do think it bears mentioning. If there's an issue in the life of this church, how do you approach it? Do you begin by praying? Is your next step to begin by asking questions? Or do you sort of make up your mind to take the matter personally, to assume that a decision made by the pastors that could have been a principled or tactical or practical decision, that somehow, some way, it's a slight against you? A random comment is an attack against you. If you find yourself doing that, friends, I, I want to let you know that there's a high possibility that you are a glory hawk. Now, the, the second uh, identifying mark of a glory hog is this, that, that they're always prone to comparison. The, the glory hog's glory comes from man, not from God, right? That's where they get their glory. They should get their glory from God, but they get it from man. And what that leads them to is to be constantly measuring themselves against other man. Ephraim, in this text, is offended by way of comparison, right? They got to go, we didn't get to go. They got to fight, we didn't get to fight. They'll look brave, we won't look very brave. You see what's happening here? Friends, you have to know that comparison with other sinners is going to be the thief of all of your joy. Whenever uh, one of my daughters compares herself with another one of my daughters, which is like on a daily basis, sometimes a thousand times a day, I just hit her with the same response. Worry about you. If you're going to compare yourself to someone, friends, compare yourself to Jesus Christ and then let the weight of that utter insufficiency take you to the cross. Thinking about what I say to my daughters, maybe a more gospel-centered phrase might be something like this. Worry about what God is doing with you and let God do what he's doing with other people. Let, leave that to them. Now, speaking of comparison... Let's see, see how this little conflict uh, works itself out between Gideon and Ephraim. Gideon, as I've said, he soothes the anger of the Ephraimites by pointing out their contributions to the battle. He says, hey, you guys got Oreb and Zeb. You're crushing it. But we know that this isn't genuine. It seems like Gideon is flattering the Ephraimites. Now, if Gideon would have just merely pointed out their accomplishments and said something like, honestly, guys, you are contributing to the victory. Sorry about the confusion, but you're doing great. Keep going. Well, that would be one thing. Instead, we find Gideon comparing the Ephraimites to what he and the 300 did. And that's what clues us in to the fact that this is flattery. Gideon says, come now, brothers. What have we done compared to what you've done? Look at you, you big studs. You got Oreb. You got Zeb. He's a real silver-tongued fox. Listen to the slickness he hits him with in verse 2. This is going to blow your mind. You ready? Is not the gleaning of grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebiezer? Come on. This guy should go into office. That's real smooth. 
Now listen, if you know Oreb and Zeb, and I know you guys know Oreb and Zeb, then you know that these Midianite princes that were captured by Ephraim, that this was not an easy task. But we have to be honest here. Ephraim capturing Oreb and Zeb is nothing compared to what Gideon and his 300 did. It was 300 versus 130,000. There is no comparison. And yet, Gideon says, oh, what have I done compared to what you have done? This is flattery, and this is bad. And the reason why this is bad is because flattery is sin. Listen to what the book of Proverbs says, 26 Verse 28, a flattering mouth works ruin. Job says this in his righteousness, I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery towards any person. The Apostle Paul, obviously pulling deep from the wellsprings of the Old Testament, he says this of false teachers. For such persons do not serve the Lord our Christ, excuse me, our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Then he says this about his own ministry. We never came with words of flattery. Right? That's a big deal for Paul. He wants people to know, I don't flatter people. Gideon was wrong to flatter Ephraim. Instead of flattering them, he should have simply pointed out their accomplishments given them praise for their good work, and then encourage them to get back out there and get to the battle and stop being so proud. What's really tragic here is that in flattering the Ephraimites, Gideon is actually working at cross purposes with Yahweh. Remember, the whole thing about Judges 7 is that God is doing everything that he's doing to reduce the glory hunger of his people, including Ephraim to put their glory hunger to death. But then Gideon comes along and he does the opposite of that. For the sake of political expediency, he feeds their glory hunger. Not good. Proverbs 28 is wisdom that would have been helpful for Gideon to apply to his situation. He says this, whoever rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Give genuine encouragement Rebuke if you must. Hey, Ephraim, stop. Enough. It is, it's not all about you. Now go out there and help your brothers in battle. Encourage, rebuke, but do not flatter. It may pay off in the short run, but in the long run, you will regret feeding the glory hunger of your fellow fallen man. Now, let's look at the second idol in the text. The idol of security. Look at verses 4 through 6. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? Okay, again, let's, let's set the scene. All of Israel, probably not all of Israel, but most of the Israel, the army that was called out to fight this battle, they're out chasing down the Midianites. They're probably not moving in one large mass. There are probably pockets of soldiers moving down the valley, out towards the Jordan River, and trying to chase them over across into Succoth. And as we saw in verse 4, Gideon and his 300 seem to be 
leading the charge. They're at the front of the pack. And it has been a long charge. To go from the Valley of Jezreel down south across the Jordan to where Succoth was is about 40 miles, which I know to drive 40 miles ain't nothing. But to carry you and all of your warriors and all of your equipment out to battle 40 miles, who knows what the weather conditions were like, it's a lot. And so when Gideon and his men arrive at Succoth, hot on the trail of the Midianites, they are hungry and haggard. So they politely ask for some material assistance from the people of Succoth. Bread, water, you know, that sort of thing. Gideon and his army could have taken what they needed by force, as was so common in that day. But they don't. They ask politely, believing that surely, surely their fellow Israelites, their brothers in the faith, for whom they are fighting, surely they will render aid. Wrong. The leaders of Succoth ask, have you already defeated the Midianites? No? Okay, well, come back when you have. We can maybe help then. And then in verse 8, Gideon goes on a little further. Here's Succoth. He goes a little further over to the city of Penuel, and he asks the same question. Can we have some bread? And they respond in the same way. Have you defeated Midian? No? Okay, we'll come back when you have. Now the question is this. Why did Succoth and Penuel treat Gideon and his men in this way? Well, because they were worshiping the idol of security. You see, the city of Succoth was sort of situated at the border of the promised land. If you were to imagine Israel, Succoth is right here at the easternmost edge of the promised land. Now, you'll probably remember that the Midianites and all the people who were fighting with the Midianites earlier in the book of Judges, they were collectively called the people of the east. So here's what's happening the, the city of Succoth and the city of Penuel, they're right there next to the home base of the Midianites and all the people of the east. So if Gideon and his army can't quite get to the Midianites, can't quite defeat them, can't put them to death, and they render aid to Gideon, then the Midianites who are right next to them will come back and cut them down for helping their enemy. To put it plainly, the people of Succoth are afraid and they value their own safety so much that they refuse to give aid, listen to this, to their own liberating army. The people of Succoth value safety so much that they refuse to help their own brothers in the faith, their fellow Israelites. I wonder if this tendency, this proclivity, this idolatry towards always making sure we're safe and secure, I wonder if that is something that you experience in your life. I'm not going to do X, Y, Z, clear command of scripture, some kind of risk for the sake of Jesus, unless I can have 100% confidence that this won't come back to bite me in the butt. Oh, you would never say that. I would never say that, of course. But I'm asking you to analyze your heart, analyze your life. I'm not going to be generous with my treasure unless I can be absolutely certain that it won't inconvenience me financially. Now, I'll give to the church, to the needy, to missions. 
As long as I can make sure that my savings account won't take a big hit. As long as I can rest assured that my retirement fund will be okay. I'm not going to engage in relationships in the church unless I can be 99.8% certain that I won't get hurt. That I won't end up vulnerable and exposed. I won't engage in evangelism unless I can be, I mean, really certain that this isn't going to be embarrassing for me. Unless I can be sure that this isn't going to cost me my job. That this won't mess up my peer group dynamics. You know, Gideon couldn't guarantee Succoth that everything was going to be okay. But he shouldn't have had to. As your pastor, I can't promise you that if you put your neck out there and, 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 and take risks for Jesus, that everything is going to be okay. But I shouldn't have to. Because brothers and sisters, we know, because God's word tells us, and we rehearse this truth over and over again, that even if it's not okay, it's going to be okay. It's a cliche for a reason. Romans 8.28, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. Paul was saying this of people who were facing significant distress for the sake of the gospel. It may not feel okay, but it's going to be okay. Risk is right. Sacrifice is right. Now, as wrong as Succoth was to deny aid to Gideon and his men, Gideon's response is equally inappropriate, probably more inappropriate, which leads me to point number three, the idol of self. The idol of self. (coughs) It's here in point number three that we begin to see the serious decline of Gideon. We see the once timid Gideon transform into a a fire-breathing vengeance-seeking warlord of Israel. Let's begin by looking at verses 15 and 17. Excuse me, 15 through 17. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness, and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So here's what's happening. Gideon goes on, he has victory, they get the bad guys, they come back to Succoth and Penuel, and they say, well, 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 look what we got. You didn't think we could do it, did you? We did it. And now we are back. He begins by thrashing severely the leaders of Succoth, and then he kills the leaders of Penuel. It's a very dark day. Now, some readers may look at Gideon's actions with a, a kind of sympathetic eye. And if, and if that's you, your reasoning may go something like this. These towns, Succoth and Penuel, they sided with the enemy. That's justice. They were treated like the enemy because they were sided. They sided with the enemy. They got what they deserve. Good on you, Gideon, for giving them what they deserve. Well, you should know that uh, everything in my flesh feels like that has to be right. Nevertheless, I feel like that is uh, 
a wrong interpretation of what's happening here. I'll give you two reasons why. The first reason is vengeance. Romans 12, 19 reads like this. Behold, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, beloved, never, never, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is just a general theological truth that all of God's people must know. The people of God must never seek vengeance on those who do them evil. Why? Because we believe that the God of this universe alone infallibly sees what is good and right and true, what is right and wrong. And we also believe that he has promised us in his word that he will repay every evil. He has promised us that no injustice will escape his all-seeing eye. Oh, injustices escape the all-seeing eye of the state, the court system. Some people get punished who shouldn't. Other people don't get punished that should. But in God's court, in his heavenly court system, nobody escapes. But we should say more. When God says, vengeance is mine, he, he's saying more than, hey, you don't have to take vengeance because I, I got this, buddy. Don't worry, hang back. He's also saying, vengeance is not yours. He's saying, you don't have the right to do this. You're a sinner, just like the one that you're seeking vengeance against. You cannot be trusted to execute the cosmic justice of vengeance with the kind of righteousness that it requires so back off this is my divine prerogative if you're a Christian this should be the way you understand vengeance but there's something beyond this general theological truth that we should see here in this morning's text something more specific and applicable to Gideon in the book of Leviticus which is a book that Gideon would have known. He would have heard these truths read to him, recited. He would have known this to be true. In the book of Leviticus, we see very specific instructions. It says this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against any of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see, friends, taking revenge is bad, wrong, unchristian, but it's even worse when you take it on your kin, on your family, on those who are in the covenant of grace with you. Why? Well, for a bunch of different reasons. For starters, because you are co-recipients of grace. Which leads me to point number two, or sub-point number two. Why shouldn't Gideon just give Succoth what they deserve? Well, because of grace. Which, by the way, is not just a New Testament concept. In my introductory sermon to the book of Judges, I told you that this book was going to be very dark. And indeed it is, indeed it has been. And one, of the, one, of the, one aspect of darkness that we saw earlier in the book of Judges was how Israel, once the slaves of Egypt, upon entering the promised land and gaining a little bit of power, began to enslave other weaker people in the land. Hurt people hurt people, you know what I'm saying? That's what Israel did. And here we see that same thing manifesting in the, the ministry of Gideon. 
Gideon was once lowly, weak, and afraid, full of doubt when the Lord called him. He was so afraid that he sinfully tested the Lord twice. And how did God respond to that? Well, we saw a couple weeks ago, God was patient with Gideon in his fear and doubt. Gideon sinned against God, and God was gracious to Gideon beyond degree. So I think one might assume that now that Gideon is the one who is strong, dealing with Succoth and Penuel, these people of weak faith, that he, of all people, would understand that his, feel, that his fellow Israelites are wrestling through this, and that he would be inclined to give them great uh, grace, especially in light of such an existential threat. It would be understandable for Gideon to be angry, of course. Remember what we just read in Leviticus. Do not hold a grudge. The prohibition is not against being angry. The prohibition is against being angry and then holding that against your brother and then seeking revenge on him. But no, instead Gideon is acting like the unforgiving servant from Matthew 18. Do you guys remember the unforgiving servant to Matthew 18? He was in debt this much. And he was very kindly forgiven of his debt. And then he turns around and has someone, excuse me, he was in debt, he was very in debt. And then he turns around and there's someone who's in debt to him this much. And he refuses to give him grace. He, he, he demands everything from him. This is what we see in Gideon. Gideon's response to Succoth and Penuel is in general not appropriate for a man of God. And it is in particular not appropriate for a leader of God's people. So what should a leader do in this situation? Well, good leaders, they don't give people what they deserve. Husbands, are you hearing me? You don't give your wife what she deserves, what you think she deserves. Bosses, you don't give your employees what you think they deserve. That doesn't mean you don't hold them accountable, but especially if you're a Christian, you should be looking for opportunities to demonstrate grace. I try to do this with my children. Oh, I know what you deserve, a spanking. Now we're going to go back into my room. We're going to sit down on the bed. I'm going to tell you what you've done so that it's plain that I'm holding you accountable. I'm going to show you what you deserve. I'm going to hold up the belt, and I'm going to tell you I'm giving you grace today. This is what you deserve, but instead, let's go hang out. God's people deserve a leader that finds a way to give them grace. They deserve a leader that can remember what the gospel says about how God has treated them in Christ and then they should go and treat their people with the same loving kindness, even if they struggle to do so. And it is a struggle. Where would our ministry be in the life of this church if every time a member of this church sinned against me or one of the elders, we held a grudge and then came back and tried to take revenge on you? The leader of God's people must be able to absorb must be able to forgive. They must be able to apply the gospel to many relationships. At the end of the day, Gideon is reacting so violently to these people because he's not, as Leviticus 19 instructs, loving his neighbor as himself. Why isn't he doing that? Because he has an overinflated view of himself. He loves himself too much. How could you do this to me? I'm Gideon. And the solution here, of course, is not to 
undervalue, right? That's, that's an equal and opposite error. It's, it's honestly just a different manifestation of the same kind of pride. And that was Gideon's problem before this, right? That was Nate's problem before Coach Lasso showed up. Gideon was weak and whimpering. Oh, who am I? I'm so lowly. Gideon doesn't need to overvalue himself. He doesn't need to undervalue himself. He needs to accurately value himself. He needs the grace to see himself for exactly who he is, a weak and sinful man who has received an abundance of grace from a good and loving God. And if he can see himself in that way, then even if it's difficult, he will be able to love his neighbors, the people of Succoth and Penuel. He'll be able to love them even when they sin against him. Idol number four, the idol of the superhero. I wanted to say hero, but I had three S's already. Alliteration. I'm going to spare you my bad illustrations of Marvel movies because I don't really know them. What we're going to see in this fourth and final point is that the people of Israel and Gideon both have the same problem. They both want a hero. Israel wants Gideon to be the hero. And Gideon wants to be the hero himself. And that's not good for anyone. Let's look at Israel first. Look at verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Now, I want you to notice the language here. The people of Israel go to Gideon and they say, we want you to be our king. And by the way, they don't use the word king. They say rule over us, but that's, that's kingly language. And here's their rationale. For you have saved us from Midian. They are giving Gideon the credit for the victory. Now, listen, you may be thinking, Sean, aren't you over-interpreting here? I mean, you're putting a pretty strong emphasis on you, right? You, Gideon, saved us. Couldn't they just, I don't know, just be honoring Gideon? I mean, didn't he in one sense save Israel? You know, if you read the Hebrew, it's not like the you there is like in all caps for the sake of emphasis. That's a fair question, but I don't think that's right. And I'll tell you a couple reasons why. Why I think that my understanding of this is right. First is you have to remember the context. Go back and look at chapter 7, verse 2 again. <clears throat> the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. You see, friends, God knew he knew the hearts of the people of Israel, that they were inclined to give glory, not just to themselves, but to anyone, to everyone other than Yahweh, their God. And now, after they have received this victory, instead of seeing it for what it is, a, a miracle, a work of salvation from, from God in their midst, they view it as a deed of a superhero. 
You're so amazing. You're so powerful. You're so wise. We want you to be our king and your son and your grandsons. We want to have a lineage of kings that come from you, O Gideon. The second reason why I think this interpretation is right is because of what we see in verse 27. Just hop over there real quick. Chapter 8, verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and, became, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. We're going to look at this ephod thing a little bit more in a moment. But for now, you just need to know that this is an idol. It's an idol that, that Gideon himself sets up in Israel, most likely to commemorate himself in some way. And, and look what the people do when Gideon sets this up. The text says that they hoard after the ephod. They give themselves over to it, body, mind, and soul. So I think from the context overall and how they respond to this ephod, that is pretty clear. The motivations of the people are not pure. The parts of the people are inclined to idolatry. And when Gideon comes back from the battle like a real-life superhero, 300 versus 135,000, they give him the glory instead of God. Now, let's look at Gideon's response. Look at verse 23. Chapter 8, verse 23. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. <laughs> okay, Gideon, that's what I'm talking about. You get an attaboy, right? We see here a rejection of this kingship which seems like a, a glory deflection. You know, they're trying to glorify him, and he's like, choo, choo, you know, trying to deflect the glory. At this point, as I was reading this text and studying it, I, I felt a little relieved, you know? Gideon seems like he was going off, off the rails a little bit before this, first with the bribery for the Ephraimites, and then the, oof, the, the essentially torturing and killing of the people of Succoth and, and Penuel and Oh, uh, this is not going well. But then you come here and it seems like Gideon's kind of getting back on level ground. I wish that were true. I wish we could celebrate about what happens here. Uh, but that it's not what happens. Look at verses 24 through 27. And Gideon said to them, <clears throat> Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. They were all too happy. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. And you guys know that's a lot of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. What's going on here? Well, it's, it's pretty simple, really. Gideon is talking out of both sides of his mouth. On the one hand, Gideon says, no, no, I, I couldn't be your king, please. No, like, like every presidential candidate when asked in the interview two years before the election if they're going to run for office. Oh, no, I couldn't possibly. Two years later, you see them in office. It's as if Gideon is saying, 
I don't want to be the king. But then in the very next breath, he sets himself up as king in the land. And if you're having trouble seeing that, I'm going to show you three ways that he's doing it, okay? Three ways. The first way is that he erects this ephod in Israel. Gideon has the people of Israel give him a bunch of metal from the spoils of war, and then he makes this ephod. Now, uh, I know everyone here knows what an ephod is, but just in case there's someone here who doesn't know, I'll explain. The word ephod here means something like the image of an idol. I can show you that from chapter 17, verse 5. Flip on over, chapter 17, verse 5. And this man, Micah, had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. You see, the word ephod is next to the phrase household idols. This is what's known as a hendiadis. A hendiadis is what happens when we have two similar but slightly different concepts that are connected by the conjunction and. Right? So we have this in the English language, right? Nice and cozy, right? You've probably heard this before or seen it in the Old Testament with the phrase justice and righteousness. Two slightly distinct concepts, but very similar, connected by the conjunction and. And now here in Judges, in chapter 17, just nine chapters away from the way this word ephod is used here in chapter 8, we see ephod, and some household gods. Listen for the same thing here in Hosea chapter 3. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. We don't know exactly what the ephod is, but we know basically that it was something that was set up to commemorate, to be some kind of idol-worshiping mechanism in the midst of the people. And all of this, this whole transaction that we just read about in verses 24 through 27, it should take us right back to the most horrendous idol building and worshiping ceremony in the entire Bible, Exodus 32. Aaron, the priest who's supposed to be interceding for God's people, he leads them astray. He says, take off the gold earrings, okay, that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people, very willingly, took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Collecting of jewelry, fashioning of an idol, saying, this idol has saved us. Gideon collects the jewelry, builds the idol, puts it in his own hometown, as a monument to him saving Israel. The parallel is astonishing. Now, it's possible that Gideon wasn't erecting this idol in his image. Maybe he was trying to erect it as a means for Israel to worship Yahweh. That's what some commentators say. Even if we were to grant that that's true, that's still a problem because of the first two commandments. You remember the first two commandments? One God, worship him and worship him alone. Pretty easy. Commandment number two, do not worship that one God 
through any unappointed means, like graven images, like statues of golden calves, like an ephod. But there's more to this story. Even if Gideon is erecting this altar to Yahweh, he's doing it in Ophrah. Look at verse 27 again. Oh, go back. I've got to go back too. Judges chapter 8, verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. Why does it matter that he's erecting this pseudo-idol in Ophrah? Because it's his hometown. Gideon is establishing a worship center for Yahweh outside of the tabernacle, which is elsewhere in Israel. We don't know where exactly, but far away probably. And this ephod in his hometown stands as a monument to himself as a means of consolidating his power in the land. But that's not all. Look at verse 30. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Sheshem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Here we see the second way that Gideon is establishing himself as a king in Israel, even though he says that he doesn't want to be one. He does it by gathering a harem of wives and concubines to himself. This was specifically forbidden by God and his law. The first level of God's law that forbids this is that God gives one man to one woman. That's how marriage works. But then on top of that, God in the Pentateuch specifically forbids Israel in the future when they will have a king it prevents the kings in Israel from having a harem. It prevents the kings from taking many wives. Where did Gideon get this crazy idea from to establish a harem? From the only other place in the ancient Near East where kings did this. Other pagan people. And then finally, in verse 31, which we just read, we saw the third proof that Gideon is setting himself up as a king in Israel. He names his son, by the way, that he has from the concubine and not from one of his wives. We're going to talk about that next week. He names his son Abimelech. Ah, now, see, you guys don't respond because you don't read Hebrew. But if you did read Hebrew, you'd go, <gasps> because Abimelech means my father is the king. Gideon says that he doesn't want to be king, but then he does everything that he can possibly do to establish himself as a ruler in the land, as the one in charge in the eyes of the people. Oh yeah, he's got the ephod in his hometown. We got to go there to worship. Oh yeah, he's got the wives and the concubines. Oh yeah, his son is named after himself. Gideon is guilty of hypocrisy. He is double-tongued. He says one thing and does another. Deeper than that is he professes to believe one thing, but in reality he believes another. This reminds me of Paul and Peter in the book of Galatians. Do you guys remember that? Peter was a Holy Spirit-filled apostle. He had received a vision from heaven about receiving Gentiles into the household of God Gentiles and Jews coming together. God spoke to him from heaven to help him see this. And he goes, oh, I see it. And yet when Paul finds Peter in Antioch, he's refusing to fellowship with the Gentiles. 
And Paul says that because of this hypocrisy, Peter stands condemned. Paul says that Peter's actions are out of step with the gospel. Friends, Gideon too stands as one condemned in the situation. He stands as one out of step with what he professes to believe. Out of one side of his mouth, he says, no glory to me, all glory to Yahweh. Out of the other side of his mouth, he calls on the people to exalt in him. How terrible is it, friends, when we see God's people living lives of pure contradiction like this? It's bad. It's real bad. How terrible is it, brothers and sisters, when we see the leaders of God's people, the ones who are supposed to be taking them down along the path of holiness and consistency? How terrible is it when we see leaders of God's people living like this? Not just judges, not just kings, not just priests, not just prophets, pastors, missionaries. The Bible is full of stories of men who are supposed to be leading God's people and who instead are leading them astray. Now, let me just pause for a moment because listen, I know we live in a day and age where we love to beat up the church. Oh, the church. Oh, a history of unrighteousness, compromise, inconsistency, upholding systems of injustice. Yeah, true, 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 true. But friends, the worst day in the church is better than the best day in the world. It is a terrible, horrendous, awful thing when God's people and the leaders of God's people are living lives of inconsistency in this way, when we're being hypocrites. But we should thank God that the unbelieving rulers of this world can never live out lives of complete consistency with their worldviews. Think about the examples in history when leaders have obtained power and authority over the masses and they have tried to lead lives of complete consistency with their own beliefs. Think about Hitler and what he believed about genetics in light of the Darwinian worldview and what he did in light of that belief. Think about Stalin. Think about Mao. Think about Pol Pot. Think about what's happening now in our country as many of our secular leaders have rejected the law of God and are trying to lead that worldview among us with consistency. Think about how bad things are getting in light of that. Think about how good it is that they can't ever be as consistent as they would like to be. Now, as we wrap up point number four, I just want us to see a few more things. Hang in there, guys, and these are going to be rapid fire. I want us to see three different things, three effects of Gideon's hypocrisy. The first is the effect that Gideon's hypocrisy has on himself and the effect on Gideon. The text says that the ephod becomes a snare to Gideon. <clears throat> what does that mean? A snare is a trap. It's something that leads to death. And, the, and in the Bible, this language of being ensnared is almost always, I mean, universally used in some connection to idolatry. Exodus 23, 32 says this, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods, for if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Deuteronomy 7.16, your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Now here's our question. How does this idol that Gideon has erected, how does it ensnare Gideon? 
when you look at verses 29 through 32, it's clear that Gideon has a pretty peaceful life. He, he goes up into early retirement in his hometown, in his, in his home and in his hometown. He has a, a huge family, 70 sons. Back then, that was a pretty big deal. You're going to be well taken care of. And then he was buried in peace, the text says, at a good old age. It seems like physically, materially, uh, everything was going well with Gideon. But that doesn't mean that everything was well with his soul. We should take note, brothers and sisters, that the same thing could be true of you. You may be able to achieve some kind of carnal balance in your life in this fallen world you may be able to have a nice retirement house a nice retirement account a big house a a nice family a a large circle of friends a, a beautiful funeral where a lot of people come and recognize the great person and the great things the great person that you were and the great things that you did but that doesn't mean that your soul was not ensnared by an idol that entire time It is possible to be given over to idolatry and to live completely good, seemingly healthy, normal, even profitable lives in this fallen world. As a matter of fact, your idolatry may help you in that. So beware of your soul. Number two, let's consider the effect that this has on the people of Israel. Gideon might not have tried to set up this ephod as a, as, a, as a monument to himself. Maybe he set it up to the Lord. Maybe he had the best intentions in the world at first. But good intentions are not good enough. The fact of the matter is, the people hoard after this ephod. If, if you're thinking, she, Sean, you keep saying that word. You know, it's such a strong word. I know. It's translated strongly in the Bible for a reason. To whore after something is to give your entire self over to it. And that's what the people of Israel do here with this idol. Whether Gideon intended for it to be that way or not. The leaders of the Reformation, they understood this reality all too well as they were coming out of the thousand years of darkness in medieval Roman Catholicism. They were super cautious about imagery and worship, about symbols that even if you say, oh, I'm going to set this symbol up so that you can worship the Lord, they would say, no, 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 that's dangerous. John Calvin said the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. What does that mean? It means that we take the goods into our heart and then our heart converts it into evil. We take good things that God has given us and we turn them into idols. Family, friends, money, sex, food. We just keep going and going. This is what the human heart does. He's right Brothers, if you want to be an elder in this church one day or in any church one day, pay attention to what I'm about to say to you. Your good intentions are not enough. You're not going to give an account for your good intentions before the Lord. You're going to give an account to the Lord for how you shepherded the people. You have to understand that as a leader, you cannot only take into account the motives of your heart. You also have to take into account the sinfulness of the hearts of the people that you're leading. Gideon should have known better. God told him, I'm doing everything the way that I'm doing because these people love glory. They want to steal glory from me. They're a bunch of idolaters. 
Gideon should have known better. Specifically related to this text, I just want to say we should be very wary of images in worship. I know that not all Protestant Christians agree on that. There's been a history of Protestants arguing about that. But I got to tell you, I think I tend to side with John Calvin on this one. I think having images around are dangerous. I'm not particularly fond of this cross. I'm not saying that anyone here has ever committed idolatry with it, but I just don't like the temptation there. I don't like having images set up. Why is this here? As an aid to worship? Has God given us a symbol? No, he's given us his word. He's given us his son. He's given us a message. I think we should be very careful when it comes to symbols. Now, the final consequence of Gideon's sin is the effect that it had on his family, which is what we're going to look at next week as we move into Judges chapter 9. Now, in closing, I think we can all say that uh, we've been hard on Gideon this morning. You can't deny it. But I think I think I can say that we've been fair as well. We've given Gideon what I think is the honor of rendering a sober assessment of his life. Friends, you have to know that it does no good to lionize your heroes, to pretend that they didn't have errors, to pretend that they didn't make mistakes. If you want to serve Jonathan Edwards' legacy well, don't pretend that he didn't own slaves. You know what I'm saying? If you want to honor the legacy of Billy Graham, admit the fact that he did a bunch of really shady stuff in his ministry that, honestly, we should not replicate. If you want to honor Gideon, don't run from his failures and weaknesses. Recognize them, note them, mark them. And then give God the glory that he can still use a sinner like this to bring himself glory and salvation to his people. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. This book is full of anti-heroes, full of people who never quite become the leaders that they're supposed to be. The same thing is true of Gideon. And just because Gideon swerved in the latter half of his life does not mean that he did not do any good. Look at verses 34 and 35. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from his hand all Uh, hand of all their enemies on every side and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam that is Gideon in return for all the good that he had done for Israel it's very common right now for us to look at saints of the past who did amazing things by God's grace for God's glory for God's people and to write them off entirely and to say that because they had a glaring sin in their life that they did no good for us that is the wrong approach I'm not saying that some statues shouldn't be torn down. I'm saying we can't tear down every statue. The entire Bible, all of church history, and this local church is full of iron men and women with clay feet. Which is why we beat the same drum over and over and over and over again as we work through the book of Judges. We don't need an earthly savior. We need someone sent from heaven. We need someone who is made of iron from head to toe with no cracks anywhere in between. 
As much good as Gideon did, Israel needed someone greater than Gideon. As much good as Paul, Peter, Athanasius, Tertullian, Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Zwingli, Erasmus, Calvin, Edwards, Whitfield, Wesley, Spurgeon, and Sproul have done, we need someone who is infinitely greater than all of these men combined. And in Jesus, we have him. Jesus did not long for human glory like the Ephraimites. Instead, he emptied himself of glory for you and for me. Jesus did not fear the enemy like Succoth. Instead, he feared the wrath of God there in that garden, knowing what was coming to him. And yet, he walked right into the middle of the blazing furnace of God's fiery judgment so that we would not have to. Jesus did not take revenge on his people even though they killed him. He did not lead his people into idolatry but rather away from idolatry and he did not use his ministry to exalt himself but rather to humble himself and exalt the Father. Consider the irony of this. Gideon lived to a ripe old age And he was buried in honor with all of his family at his side. But Jesus died a premature death on a bloody cross as a thief, abandoned by his friends and family, surrounded by his enemies. This is a cosmic injustice. When we look at the life of Gideon, we have to say that he is worthy of our qualified admiration but Jesus the greater Gideon is worthy of our praise so my question for you this morning is will you praise him will you put your idols to death and turn to Jesus the true and living God will you give yourself over to him entirely you have to know friend your idols are ensnaring you they are a trap that is going to lead you to your death But Jesus comes and makes life possible for you. And he doesn't deceive you into that life. He doesn't lay a trap and maybe you'll stumble into that life. No, he comes and gives himself for your life in front of God and the world. And if you enter into that life, you will find nothing but blessings and joy unimaginable. So choose this day, 6th Avenue, whom you will serve. As for me and my family, in this church, all those who are regenerate of the Lord, we will serve Jesus. Let's pray. Father, when we prayed at the beginning of this sermon, we asked for your help. We asked with hearts of faith, trusting that you would give it And you did. You you used a a weak servant like me, stumbling, fumbling, losing his way in the text. God, you don't need me. You used your word. You fed us, God. We are full, full to the brim with all of your goodness and grace. We love you, and we pray that you'll help us to sing with full hearts in response to what you have done for us in your Son. Amen.